This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. Today marks 18 years since the tragedy of 9-11. I was only seven years old in 2001, so my memory of the day itself is muddy. However, that day has been etched into my mind through years of memorials, assemblies, and personal visits to Ground Zero. 9-11 was a tragedy, and it was not an isolated incident. I can't help but connect it to the war that followed, yet another tragedy. As we were selecting this week's story, it felt extremely important for it to be in conversation with this date, 9-11, and the events that surround it in our collective memory. I fully realize, though, that my understanding of these events is limited by my specific point of view, and also because I have the privilege of never having been the target of violence. This is one of many instances where the experiences of others so strongly contrast mine, and listening to them helps broaden my understanding of the world we share. This week's story from Jim Lupo was born out of one such moment. I was shadowing the curator, Amanda Delheimer. At the very first meeting, Amanda led the tellers in a brainstorming session. At one point she asked, what's a moment when you felt in danger? Immediately, the women and people of color in the room all had stories, but Jim was silent. Amanda asked him why, and he replied, I'm really struggling to come up with something. The moment that occurs to me is one where I was the aggressor, when I felt endangered by my own actions. That moment grew into the meditation on violence you're about to hear. Recorded live at Pub 626 in Chicago in June 2018, Second Story is proud to present Knuckles. Sunday mornings in my father's grocery store were the best. We were a block away from St. Rosalie's Church on the far northwest side of Chicago. The whole neighborhood came to the store on their way back from Mass, 7.30, 9 o'clock, 10.30. They came to buy the newspaper, pick up the special sweet rolls and Italian bread that we only carried on Sundays. But mostly they came to shoot the breeze with my dad. Our store felt like the most special place in the neighborhood on Sunday mornings. Even at 20 years old, when my Saturday nights usually moved well into Sunday mornings, I loved Sundays in the store. There was real community. It felt out of time, a throwback. After the church crowd left, we would stay open till around 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Sundays, and it was quiet. Just me and my dad, maybe the black and white TV wheeled up from the back room to watch the Cubs or Bears. Nothing was going on at all, just talking. But not that Sunday. I knew there was going to be a problem when he walked in the store. Aerosmith tank top, trucker's wallet chain to a belt loop, mullet. He had a bow-legged swagger and an unlit cigarette dangling from his lip. It was Chicago tough guy wannabe circa 1984. I was standing off to the side, as I always did, leaning against the ice cream freezer case. 
My dad was at his usual perch behind the counter. Mullets walked right up to him. Give me a pack of smokes, Marlboro. In 1962, five years after my father opened the store, he lost his license to sell cigarettes. And it was a big deal back then. Cigarettes are a great moneymaker. Some local cop who didn't like the fact that all of these greaseball dagos, he would actually say that, were moving to the neighborhood, he wanted to screw with my dad. So he sent in his underage daughter to buy cigarettes. She even said they were for dad, Officer Johnson. And after my dad sold them, the cop came in, issued a citation, and had my father's tobacco license pulled. It was 200 bucks to get it back, which was a lot of money back then. So for the rest of time, forever. If my dad thought you were underage, he didn't sell you cigarettes and no ID, no note, no full head of gray hair and gray beard could convince him to sell them to you. My dad was like that. He was stubborn. He followed his own rules to a T. I said, give me a pack of smokes, old man. But the decision was in. I'm sorry, kid, you're too young. I'm 21. Here's my fucking ID. My dad tries to reason with him. Look, there, there's a vending machine across the street at the Monte Carlo. I can make change for you if you want. I want a fucking pack of smokes, and I don't want to walk across the street. Can't do it, son. I ain't your son, you old fuck. Now, the knuckle on my father's right fist, the pinky knuckle, was gone. It wasn't, it wasn't there. It had been shattered so often that he couldn't fully extend the finger. Now, my dad was a butcher at a time when the distance between live human and dead meat was minimal. There were no machines to do the wet work. He had these explosive short chops with the cleaver, which were all shoulder flex and forearm hammer, splitting beef loin ribs. He had piston biceps that sliced through bloody shanks with a bone saw. But nothing made me fear and admire my father more than that missing pinky knuckle. When I asked him about it, I, I loved his hands. They were gnarled and scarred, but really gentle. He just said, too many jaws had gotten in its way. <laughs> and he left it at that. Well, my uncles, they were very happy to explain and tell me about my dad as a brawler, a real Chicago tough guy circa 1944, back in the old West Side Taylor Street Italian neighborhood. To hear them tell it, he was mostly protecting his younger brothers and sister in a poor, really violent neighborhood. Now, he, he had such a reputation that everybody wanted him on their crew. Fifi Bucciri, Johnny the Bug, Teets, Battaglia, I swear to God, these were all real gangster guys. They all wanted him, but, but he, he didn't want to have any part of it. He'd say, Grandpa lived in boxcars working for railroads for five years when he came to America. He dug ditches on construction sites while the Irish and German bosses dropped bricks on his head. He did that so I could be a tough guy and wind up in a trunk. Now, I heard versions of that guiding principle so many times. When I wanted to change my major, when I wanted to join the Peace Corps with my girlfriend, 
when I wanted to quit law school, when I wanted to leave my law practice. Your grandpa struggled and fought so you could take the easy route. We don't take the easy route. Mullet swore again and something just snapped in my head. Normally I would let my dad handle this. Assholes came in the store all the time. And he was still a badass, my dad, when he needed to be, even at 64, with those biceps still big as cantaloupes. But, but something snapped. Maybe my slight hangover, maybe 20-year-old stupidity, maybe just not wanting anyone threatening my dad. I don't know. Something just snapped. You're not his son, but I am. Get your goddamn cigarettes across the street and don't be an asshole. Well, fuck you too, prick. The first Christmas present my father ever gave me himself, not from Santa and not from mom, was a pair of little boy boxing gloves. There's this picture of me at four years old. I'm, believe it or not, scrawny, um, wearing nothing but saggy white BVDs hanging off my ass and a menacing toddler snarl, fists up in a boxer stance, and I'm challenging whoever was snapping that Polaroid. It was probably my mom telling me, look, look meaner, Jimmy, look meaner, meaner. My dad, my dad would kneel down in front of me in the living room with his floppy padded big boy gloves on to teach me how to box and how to fight. Protect with my right and jab with my left. Keep my knees bent, always be moving. Wait to uncoil the right when the other guy's guard went down from the jabbing. Always punch through the target, not at it. Which, when you think about it, is pretty good advice for any kind of fight that you might get into. Um, he, he would hit me with short little wrist flicks from his gloves. He'd tap me on the head and the body. It was never enough to hurt but it was always enough to know that they could. And then there were the rules. He told me them to me over and over and over again. Never start a fight. Don't be suckered into one. Don't be afraid to take a punch, but return it twice and twice as hard. There are certain places a gentleman can punch, and there are certain places he cannot. How you confront an enemy is how the world confronts you. And most important, never, ever get angry. If you lose your head, you lose the fight. After each one of these lessons, my mom, who always watched, rolling her eyes and puffing on a Newport, she would take me aside and she would say, Jimmy, you forget all that bullshit your dad just told you, how a gentleman fights. Anyone ever hits you, my beautiful little boy, you hit him as hard as you can with anything you can get your hands on, stick, rock, anything, and don't stop hitting until he stops moving. You could pretty much tell the difference between my parents' moral codes and ethical stances by their respective theories on self-defense. Despite knowing in my heart that my mom had so much more fun in her short, fierce life, I have always wanted to be more like my dad than I certainly am. He was disciplined and principled. He lived by the rules that kept those fires inside, vented, cooled, and contained. So here's all I remember. 
I shove Mullet out the front door. He bangs on the door glass. He flips me off. He screams every filthy word in the big filthy word book. There is red, lots of red. His face is red. The air feels red. And then we're throwing each other against the outside walls of the long grocery store building, heading down the block into the alley. And then nothing. There's blind silence. And then my dad's voice from far away fades up louder and then louder. You're killing him. You're killing him. Don't kill him. Kill him. My dad is spitting. His hazel eyes are angry and small. I feel the gravel from the alley grinding into my knees as I straddle mullet, holding his neck down and punching him in the head. There's more red. There's liquid red. And then him running down the alley. The police never came not in that neighborhood, and not at that time. But the adrenaline vomit did, the shaking, uncontrollable tears I couldn't explain, a feeling of being in danger, of being near an edge I couldn't make out, never came so close to before and never have again. Thank God there were no aftermath stragglers in the store when my dad walked me into the back workroom. He washed Mullet's blood off my hands, and he wrapped the right one in ice from the meat freezer. He knew the swelling was coming. I was still shaking, still crying. He stood behind me and rubbed my head and back with those hands. He tried to calm me. I'm sorry, son. I wanted to see his hazel eyes, but he stayed behind me. Why are, are you sorry? The things I said, I shouldn't have done that. I should have pulled you away. I rubbed his hands, rubbing my shoulders, and I felt for that missing knuckle. Well, Pa, not exactly roughhousing in the living room, was it? That's the point, he said. It never is. That's the point. I lost my head. We can't lose our heads, son. We can't, ever. The strong emphasis on the we brought it home. And I knew in that alley, in that moment, I almost lost his fight. I almost lost grandpa's fight. I almost lost the whole big fight. This story was produced by Gracie Meyer, curated by Amanda Delheimer, directed by Chris Thorin, with music and sound design by Allison Hines. The Second Story podcast is produced by Max Spitz. Second Story is supported by the MacArthur Fund for Art and Culture at the Richard H. Treehouse Foundation, Skadden, Arpslate, Meager, and Flom, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, CoBank, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this this, this is the second, second story podcast.